been here in the last few weeks with a nephew and they're looking at apps at the moment. Um, I'm just going to do a really quick recap of what we've been looking at. So in, on the first week we looked at Adeline, where we saw Paul, who was literally going around imprisoning and murdering Christians, have an encounter with Jesus which completely transforms his life. He's then baptised and filled with the Holy Spirit. And God says that Paul is his chosen instrument to share Jesus with the Jews and the Gentiles. The key for me here is that Paul's encounter with Jesus was so real to him that he was willing to call himself a Christian when he knew that he could be murdered for it because he was the one that was going around doing that stuff. Then in Acts 10, we saw Peter, who was once Jesus' disciple and now a leader of the early church, have a vision where God tells him very clearly that the message of, the, of Jesus is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. In other words, the gospel was for everyone. Then last week, we looked at Acts 11, where the church accepted Peter's vision and rejoiced that they can share their gospel with everyone. We see the church were scattered by persecution, but they just carried on spreading good news to both Jews and Gentiles. God was with them, and the church grew, and more and more people became Christians. The church were already in a lot of trouble with the Jews, yet they were willing to take that extra radical step of faith, which put them at even more risk. And they were happy about it, because they wanted everyone to know Jesus the way that they did. And that brings us to Acts 12, which we're going to look at today. Um, so we're going to read Acts 12, verse 1 to 18. I'll just give you a minute to find it. And then we'll read it together. <coughs> okay, so this is Acts 12, 1 to 18. It was about at this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter, Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea what the angel, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked through the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, 
where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl came, named Rhoda came to the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without even opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on looking, and when they opened the door, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So we have King Herod arresting and persecuting Christians. He had already had James, the brother of John, killed and found that this met approval with the Jews. It seems that he enjoyed this approval and had a desire to be liked by the Jews. Because of this, he arrested Peter. This kind of myth made sense, not only because Peter was a leader of the early church, but also because he had just stirred up more anger from the Jews because of his claims that the gospel was for everyone. If Herod was able to kill Peter, this would be a serious blow to the church and to the entire Christian movement. And this would effectively make the Jews very happy. He put Peter in prison because it was not appropriate in Jewish customs to perform an execution during the time leading up to the Passover, which it was during that time. It says that there were four squads of four soldiers, and when I looked into it, it said that they tripped three hour shifts guarding Peter's cell. Two of the soldiers were shackled to Peter, and the other two guarded the door. The reason Herod had 16 soldiers guarding Peter was because Peter had a history of escaping from prison. We can read about that in Acts 5, where an angel opens the door for him during the night. But what you can see is while all this is going on, the church are praying earnestly for Peter, keeping in mind that they know Peter is going to be killed if he is brought before a public trial. They have already seen James and many others murdered already. But they also know that God has broken Peter out of jail before, and all they, all they did that time was just pray. The word prayed earnestly in NIV says without ceasing in the New King James, is used for an extended period of prayer. I imagine something like a 24-7 prayer room where they're just praying desperately day and night for God to intervene. They know that trying to free him from prison would be suicide. Many times our actions can be part of our answer to prayer, but this was one of those occasions where the only thing left to do was pray. They were praying for a repeat of the miracle they'd seen before in Acts 5. In the night before the trial, that would almost certainly end in Peter being killed, and Peter is asleep. If it was the night before, I was going to be ridiculed in a public trial and murdered as a representative of the early church, chained between two soldiers in a dark shell. I'm not sure I'd find it very easy to sleep. But not only was he asleep, he was in a very deep sleep. Perhaps Peter was just at peace that God had a plan, whatever consequences the next day. But suddenly, an angel appears, and a light shines into the cell. 
that Adrian pokes Peter in the side to wake him up and tells him to get dressed. His chains just fall off his hands. The angel says, wrap your cloak around yourself and follow me. So Peter just follows this angel out of the prison, passing the guards out onto the street. The iron gate just opens itself and they walk out. At this point, Peter still has absolutely no idea that it's actually happening and thinks he's seeing a vision. Then just as suddenly as the angel appears, it just disappears again. I imagine it's a bit like sleepwalking, waking up and having no idea how he managed to get there. So he goes to the house of Mary, where people from the church are praying into the night. He wanted to tell them about the miracle that had just happened. He knew that this would encourage and strengthen them. This is the opposite of what Herod had wanted. Rather than using Peter as a way of disheartening the church and the Christian movement, which was what Herod wanted, God had changed the situation completely around to do quite the opposite. Peter knocks on the door and the servant comes to answer. She recognises Peter's voice and she's so excited that she runs back into the house to tell everyone the good news. They didn't believe her, but when she kept insisting, they decided it must be his angel. In their culture, they, called, they held really strongly to the idea of garden angels. And we assume that they thought Peter was dead and that his guardian angel was coming to visit. This shows what an amazing miracle this was. The church thought it was more likely that Peter was dead and his guardian angel was coming to visit than he was standing there outside the door. Meanwhile, Peter continues to knock, probably feeling very anxious to get inside, out of sight, and aware that time is precious. And when they finally open the door, they're completely amazed to see that Peter is in fact there. Peter tells them about what's happened and tells them to spread the news across the church. Then he leaves for another place. It doesn't tell us where he went, but we assume he went into hiding so that he wasn't found by Herod. Meanwhile, Herod does a thorough search for Peter, can't find him, cross-examines the guards. The guards knew that the consequence of falling asleep or letting Peter escape would be execution. This is reason enough to assume that this wasn't just a coincidence. We don't know whether the soldiers were in a good induced sleep, blinded by the light, or whether they were aware that God just stopped them intervening. But either way, Herod had been killed. I just think that's a really exciting story. How can we say the Bible's boring after reading that? It's why it's really exciting. But there are just a couple of themes that I picked up from that that I wanted to talk about. The first one is persecution, and the second one is prayer. Um, I just felt like those were two themes that really came out to me that I wanted to talk about. So what we see is, in the story, the church are facing what we can call extreme persecution in a way that they're being murdered for what they believe. And what's astonishing is the church, rather than growing weaker, it seems to be growing stronger. They seem to be praying harder, standing together more firmly, and spreading the gospel further. This is just a tiny snippet of what's happening in the early church in these days. And we see enormous sacrifice. James and many of others, others have already been murdered. Peter's in jail and church members are praying day and night. What strikes me is that Jesus was so real to them that they were willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of spreading the gospel. 
There's a lot of evidence suggest, to suggest that a majority of Jesus' 12 disciples were murdered for what they believed and for spreading the gospel. But they never stopped proclaiming it, and the church never stopped growing. The fact that we're here 2,000 years later is a testament to that. But what lies really heavy in my heart is that persecution has never stopped. I think it's really easy for me to read that story and think, thank, thank goodness we don't face that kind of persecution today. But there are Christians all over the world that read that story and they find it really encouraging because they can completely relate to it. I was just looking at some statistics this week from a charity called Open Doors who work with the persecuted church worldwide. I'm just going to read you a few of the statistics that they set out. Christians remain one of the most persecuted religion, religious groups in the world. 215 million Christians extreme high, experience high levels of persecution. This represents one in 12 Christians worldwide. Christian torture remains an issue, including the risk of imprisonment, loss of home and assets, physical torture, beheadings, rape, and even death. Perhaps the most vulnerable are Christian women who often face double persecution for faith and gender. Every month, 255 Christians are killed, 104 are abducted, 180 Christian women are raped and forced or forced into marriage, 66 churches are attacked, and 160 Christians are detained throughout trial and imprisonment. So that's every month across the world. So we can, we can honestly say that the church is still suffering <coughs> in the same extreme ways as they were in the early church, and it's not just something that happened then and not now. I was just reading 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, where it says, we are one body, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And Hebrews 30, verse 3 says, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. So I was just thinking about all of that and how I'd like to suggest that we have a part to play in that worldwide persecution, in the same way that the church prayed earnestly for Peter while he was in prison. Should we be praying earnestly for the worldwide persecuted church? Not losing sight of this worldwide persecution, I feel urgently we also need to be praying earnestly for each other. We may not be facing life-threatening persecution for our face, but we do face persecution day in and day out, as well as hardships and suffering in life every day. We're doing a prayer course with our old home, youth home church at the moment, and we've been praying for each other each week and seeing prayers answered. This is anything from exam, sickness, family issues, telling friends about Jesus, all of those everyday things. And I think I'm just as excited as the young people about what we're learning about prayer as a community together. It builds our trust in God, brings us closer together. We're able to stand together and open up and praying about all these tough things going on. This week we had a young person whose family have had a particularly really rubbish week. And we just all sat, stood around in German home church and prayed for them. And I think it's a feeling that can't really be explained until you've experienced it standing with someone that's having a really tough time. And another thing, Sean and I have been taking a prayer request jar to Wyvern where we do the mess 
um, which is like their lunch club that we do once a week. And we just left it on the table and said, anyone that wants to leave a prayer request, just pop it in the jar. Um, last week we had just over 10 prayer requests. Um, and when we were walking home reading them, we were like, actually, these are all really real. Um, and these young people, they don't know Jesus, but they just put these prayers in and they said, we really love prayer for these things. Um, and we prayed for all those people with our home church on Thursday. And we're really excited to see God answer those prayers. We just really feel that, yeah, we just really feel that if we are able to pray and stand with those people, we're excited to go back into Wyvern and for these young people to say, actually, my prayers have been answered. And they don't even know God. Um, and that just really excites us. So when I read about the stories of the early church and Acts, I feel really convicted that I need to spend more time in prayer. Thessalonians 5 verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. And I think this looks like praying throughout the day, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. But also there's something, I think, in praying together. Matthew 18 verse 20 says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Prayer is all about asking for God's will to be done in our situations. And while the answers may not always end in the miracles we're expecting, we can say in our hearts, your will be done. And know that whatever the consequences, we can trust God and live in peace that's beyond understanding. So that's all I wanted to say today about Acts. Um, I hope that's okay. I really believe that we need to make sure we don't just read these stories, that we learn from them and put this learning into action. We need to open our minds to the opportunity of how God can move in our lives today like he was in the early church. And I think what we can learn from Acts 12 is all about standing together in prayer, praying earnestly for one another, and just allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us every day. So that's what I'm going to say. I just thought it would be really good for us now to maybe get into a little...